The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Freaky Friday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the kind of pissy right now, Tammy, the pissy pants, Underwood. Hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I am pissy right now. My blood sugar is fine. I'm finally stopping the shaking, the shaking, but yeah. Shake, 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 Sonora. You know. Shake your body line. You know how it is. No. So, I yeah. never do that shit. I know. You don't know how to dance because you ain't got no rhythm, white boy. Um, I do because I am very, very, very happy. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm black. That's what I am. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you know what? I'm, I'm looking at Ishi Shigawa right Is- now. Ishi Shigawa. Whatever his name is. He is a funky looking dude. The picture that you posted uh, inside yeah, the Yeah, you're going to think he's more than just a funky dude. Does he have funky Cole Medina? Uh, no, he's a sick fucker, though. Hey, man, cool. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Okay, Woo! so. Um, yeah, so this one, you know, because, you know, you and I have talked many times about the benefits of having a little money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we discussed the fact that money can literally buy you almost anything mm-hmm. in this world. However, there is a saying that says it can't buy you happiness. <laughs> but I kind of beg to differ, and here's why. When it can buy your freedom after you commit the most heinous murder known to mankind, wouldn't that make you happy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Some might say that it, t- the answer to that question is yes. However, others might ask a question of their own. Did the person who got away with murder live a fulfilling life once they were free? Without giving too much away, the answer to that question would also have to be a yes. I'll explain what I mean probably next week. Um, But the subject of today's presentation is Issei Sagawa, known throughout Paris and Japan as Pang or the Kobe Cannibal. Oh, oh, the Sushi Ita. Yeah, his tale is one that makes Hannibal Lecter look like a fucking choir boy. Tell me, Tammy. Are the lambs still screaming? Yes. <laughs> All I can say is, Thomas Harris, you need to step up your game or talk to Sagawa to get some pointers. Actually, you know what line I really love from... Which one? Uh, from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Not the fava beans. No, no, because that's been way... Yeah, over- that is way overused. When, uh, when Clarice goes back to see Hannibal and is talking about the, the, his... Next door neighbor, the, the the cell next to him that he convinced oh, him to kill himself. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And he got uh, the one that threw his comment. Yeah, sh- yeah. So, something about uh, uh. Well, were you talking to him? You know, and or whatever she said, and he goes, uh, or something that he had done, like throwing jizz or something. Yeah, he goes, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's, I always and I like the one at the end. <laughs> I'm having a good friend for dinner. <laughs> Don't worry about me, Clarice. I'm having a. I'm, I'm meeting a friend. A good friend. For, for dinner. dinner. Yes. So most psychologists have theorized that when it comes to cannibalism, those who practice it generally have a lower intelligence level. For example, some of the most famous cannibals, Jeffrey Dahmer, mm-hmm. very low intelligence. Andre Chikatilo, kind of low intelligence. And highly, and Chikatilo was fucking mean as fuck. Yeah. And then, of course, our favorite twosome, Henry Lee and Otis Tool. <laughs> hey, Henry, Henry, we're going to score. Boy, I know, right? I am the great good holly. <laughs> you yeah. know, his Henry, human Henry. barbecue sauce. Henry, I need TV for my bunghole. <laughs> but yeah, and Andre Chikatilo, I mean, he he was he was smart in the way he got away with it, but it's not like he really tried to get away. You know what I mean? That's true. And th- this he is was just of- so unremarkable as a person that. He didn't stand out in a crowd. The thing is, though, that, that we have Henry Lee and Otis, and they got away with it, like, a lot. And they were dumb as hell, man. Yeah, pretty much. <coughs> but like, then they didn't really stand out in a crowd either. Like if, it, But I would think that they would, because seriously, if you don't know who they are, look them up. It's, it's oh, the yeah, they're kind of the, the buck-tooth bandits. But, you know, if, if 
the word stupid in the dictionary had a picture attached to it, it'd be these two motherfuckers. Yeah. They'd be like, stupid. C, Henry Lee Lucas, and Otis Tool. Right. Precisely. It's like, you know, you can't fucking win with them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I love revisiting him, though, because they are the most entertaining. Yeah. And (laughs) in fact, it's actually said that that is why the world was so fascinated with Hannibal Lecter, because he was outside the norm when it came to cannibalistic serial killer. Very true. Even though the character may have been a little outside the norm, his characteristics are far from fictional. And you'll see what I mean. Ooh. Yeah. So, uh, the the Bois de Ballon, Ballon, I can't pronounce that, but Ballon, Ballon is a 2,000-acre park located in Paris. It's actually been referred to as the Paris version of Central Park. Yep. Um, France that has, outside Paris, France, it was given to the city in 1853 by the guy who discovered America, Napoleon III. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell everybody about that right there. <laughs> yeah, because so, we, ta- we were doing this when I asked that question. We're researching our, our squatch here. Uh, Tammy's re- researching this, and, and, she, and we were talking about Napoleon, and out of my son's mouth. <laughs> he, he says he wasn't uh-huh. thinking straight. Comes, Didn't he discover America? Or, or I'm sorry, was that before or after he discovered America? And we both just froze because... My brain stopped. Yeah, you, know, you and I both, our heads snapped so fast towards him that I thought we were going to get whiplash. <laughs> yeah. Hey, is there any wine left? There probably is. Oh. Can I get a glass? glass? It might help. Yeah, yeah, get her a glass of wine. She won't be as bitchy. But yeah. No, uh, I'll so, always be bitchy. Uh huh, whatever. No, it, it, that's your public education, your private it, education. That's fucking hilarious, though. Well, it was paid for. By me. By him. It was wonderful. Five yeah, because I, so, I always say that, you know, that's your education dollars at work. <laughs> so fucking my, my favorite thing to, to, to tease my son about, though, is, yeah, I remember when Napoleon uh, discovered America and then the Aztecs. That's right. Went over to Switzerland and taught them how to make chocolate. And then Genghis Khan. <laughs> ran you know, for president. You, you know, came over here and traveled the, you know, the... Oregon Trail, and you know, with Sacagawea, yes, and Sacagawea Joanna, and he probably also helped sink the Titanic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, if I can, you know, I, I, I yeah. Matter of fact, I remember reading a history book where Genghis Khan was laying across the couch and said, "Pay me like those French girls, Jack." <laughs> I just, my son and I just watched the first Bill and Ted the other day with, with Scott, uh, uh, what's his name? It's not Genghis Khan, that other one. Thank you. Oh, oh, yeah. The uh, Mongolian? Yeah, the Mongolian. Yeah. That's Genghis Khan, though, yeah. Uh, no, was, they said something. Maybe it was Genghis it's Khan. Genghis Khan. Okay. Yeah, he was the Mon- he's the famous Mongolian. Yeah, so in its Haiti, it belonged to the French monarchy, and they used it for their lavish parties because it was ample room for them to mount their horses to go on a hunt. <laughs> and I knew you'd like that one. It's going to be one of those episodes, isn't it? Yeah. Which one is this? That's a reserve. It's a, uh, I think it's a, I can't remember which, it might be a Nabella reserve. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm not a big fan of red, but you've kind of turned me on to some of them. Yeah. That's a pretty expensive bottle of wine. So. Yeah. So (laughs) even today, people often. That's not box wine or Walmart wine you're drinking this It's not box wine. I almost bought you a can of Underwood wine today, but changed uh, my mind. That's actually the Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. It's a, uh. I think it's a 2018 Sauvignon. Oh, okay. And it's from the reserve collection. Did I not ask for a Merlot? No, that's a Martha Stewart quote. <laughs> so, like I said, people often compare it to New York Central Park with its abundance of greenery and the lakes that tend to draw a crowd. Some have said that no matter how many times they visit, <laughs> they always find a new path or trail they never noticed before. It's actually a very beautiful park. Yeah, in I've- fact. Well, I know. I saw pictures. It's gorgeous. Walk through there. It's gorgeous. Well, I've never even been to Central Park, but now I what? I've never been to New York except for, no, I was in Newark, New Jersey Airport. Okay, number one, that's nothing close to New York. I know. Newark is a garbage dump. Newark freaking, yeah, and I asked you this, if it was just the airport, if it was the entire freaking city that smelled like, oh my God. Newark always always smells like that. Arcus. Yeah, Newark always smells like trash. It's disgusting. Yeah, like... Like rotten fish, and it was yeah. nasty. Kind of like uh, Marine Drive smells in the summer. Uh, Marine Drive smells more like it's propane is what they're airing. 
Yeah. We've got the propane. The, I love the propane. I but, love the propane. But then the waterfront by the down by the Willamette. Oh yeah. Smells like oh, it is the most horrendous smell in the summer. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of it smells like old hooker crotch. Yeah, and if you ever come to Oregon, don't ever swim in the Willamette. Yeah, no, that's contaminated. And as it's fun. pronounced Willamette, not Willamette. I'm just saying. In the Willamette River. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, in fact, it's common for a pedestrian to have to step aside so that a cyclist, jogger, or horseback rider can pass by. You know, pedestrians don't have to ride away there. In the light of day, the Bois de Boulogne is the epitome. I always want to pronounce that epitome. Of picturesque beauty. Although there is still a fair amount of activity in the park at night, people say that there is a noticeable atmospheric shift in the area after sunset. It's like there's a buzzing undercurrent that you can feel, but you can't see. Yeah, you can get mugged and killed there, dude. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about here in a minute. It's just like Central Park. You don't walk walk through Central Park in the middle of the fucking night. Yeah. You know, because unless you're, like, packing some heat, you know, fucking you're ready to shoot somebody. Or you're big as fuck, like, you know, you and I. Or or, or you're crazy like me. (laughs) Please. I I will go psycho Sally on a bitch. (laughs) It wouldn't be my first time, so that ain't my first rodeo. Mine either. So in the 70s, the major problem the authorities dealt with at the Bois was the muggings. People often avoided the park after a certain time during the night because there was a high probability they wouldn't emerge unscathed. Some said with even with their life. (laughs) In the 80s, the muggers were driven out when the prostitutes took over. No matter what night of the week you ventured out, you could find a prostitute that fit your desires. Scott, they came in all shapes, sizes, both male and female. There it's was like, even it's like a, a group, buffet of sex. That's awesome. Yeah. There was even a group of Brazilian transvestite prostitutes that drew their own crowd every evening. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From, from Paris. From transsexual Transylvania. You know, my friend's husband, Redeeming Quality, could be the fact that he can quote that movie. No shit. Yes. From you front know to back. He just, he just gained some fucking points Gained in my a book. point. One point. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Maybe he's not as well. He's still white trash, but no one, no one, Rocky Horror Picture Show, that gains some. Points. Yeah, him and his son both can do it. That's right. Yeah. In the nineties, as the threat of AIDS spread across Paris, law enforcement agencies enacted and enforced a strict quote no parking order that banned use of the park after certain hours. The purpose of the ban was to deter Johns from seeking out the services of a prostitute in the secluded areas. But none of that left a scar on the picturesque beauty of the Bois as deep as the one we're going to talk about today. On Saturday, June 13th, my sister's birthday, um, 1981, shortly before midnight, a man arrived at the park. He wasn't there to find a, quote, date in the shadows, nor was he there to soak in the quiet beauty of the Lac en in the still of the night. It soon became obvious that he was there to dispose of something. That particular evening, a couple happened to be out on a leisurely midnight stroll along a lake path. They were holding hands and enjoying each other's company when they spotted a taxi stop along the side of the road just ahead of them. The couple silently watched as a, quote, young Asian-looking man got out of the vehicle. Later, when they were questioned by the authorities, they described the man in terms such as very small and delicately built. For a moment, the couple stopped along their path to watch as a small, delicate man wrestled two large suitcases from the trunk of the taxi. They said he struggled with them. Well, hey, it's ADB, little dude, man. Yeah. Not, um, hey, look, not all Japanese dudes are ninjas. No, but he, um, little known fact, he's only four foot nine. Yeah, he's, he, he's too small to be a ninja. Yeah, he's too small to be an Asian. <laughs> Although my brother, oh, my brother says like five foot two. Oh, we killed you a long time. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Oh, even though it seemed to be quite an effort, he managed to place them on the side of the road. Then they watched as he paid the driver and the cab took off into the night. Once it was gone, he hefted the hefty bags onto what appeared to be a small cart similar to a hotel trolley. Now that the bags were on wheels, he seemed to have an easier time pushing it through the park. Although they were entertained by what they saw, they didn't think very much of it as they started off down the path again. However, the man suddenly did something that drew their attention once more. They slowed to another stop as they saw him take a sharp turn into the grass and made a beeline for the water's edge. That's when it was obvious to them that he was intent, intent on dumping the bags and the large heavy bags in the lake. 
right about the time the man's intentions became clear to them, he suddenly stopped in his tracks and looked over his shoulder. That's when he seemed to realize that he had an audience. As they watched him, he seemed to panic and change his mind. Rather than continue to the lake to dispose of the bakes, he tried to nonchalantly place them under some of the bushes that were next to where he was standing. After that, he turned around and ran. Curiosity got the better of the two people. Once they saw the small man make such a bizarre exit, they decided to see what was in the suitcases he left under the bushes. After all, what could possibly what could someone possibly want to dispose of at the bottom of the lake? Ha ha ha. I know. Why is he trying to dispose of his clothing? Yeah. Ready? They placed <laughs> one of the suitcases on its side and slowly unzipped it. What they saw not only made them both cringe and horror, it would remain burned in their memories for the rest of their lives. There is no way that the man wouldn't have known there was a strong possibility that people would have seen him carry out his disposal plans. Then again, before he committed the crime, he had already made up his mind where he would try to conceal the evidence. After all, the Bois was relatively close to his residence, and there were many lakes there for him to choose from. He was very agile since he couldn't have been more than, they say more than five foot tall, but I watched a documentary said he's exactly four nine. I read an article that said he weighed in at just six stone. Okay, that was a phrase I'd never heard before. As it turned out, the formula for stone to pound conversion is math ti- mass times 14, so he couldn't have been more than 84 pounds soaking wet. So you realize that under 5'10 is a midget, right? Yes, I do. He's a very little under man. Under 4'10, rather. So Actually, 4'11 is the cutoff. Is it 4'11? Yes, because my best friend's 4'11 and 3 quarters, and she stresses that 3 quarters. We are the lollipop kids. Little midgets, dude. Yeah, I'm afraid for her when she gets older and shrinks. I'm kind of happy. We got two midget serial killers, like, yeah. within two weeks. That's yeah. freaking awesome. And that one was an actual dwarf. Yeah, this guy isn't wasn't considered a dwarf because he didn't have the dwarf-like uh, features. But he was a very little person. I'm still stuck on the dwarf we did that led a death squad. Uh, you know what? I didn't see anybody but a dwarf. That That's him. My favorite. That's him. <laughs> He's like, bye-bye. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I'm sure that as he dodged trees and hurtled the shrubbery on his mad dash for safety, shit. Actually, they said he was very athletic. Get the fuck like yeah, that's small. And he's like hurtling. Yeah, he, he was is wonder- a ninja. He's <laughs> a fucking ninja. okay. He's a midget You're- ninja. I'll say hurtled the shrubbery. I'm not saying hurtled fences. He's, he's shrubbery. He's a mini ninja. Yeah. That's awesome. That's kind of like ninjas an appliance, too, so they should make appliances resembling him. They should. Awesome. Mini ninja. Yeah. So he was wondering how long it would be before he was arrested and thrown in jail. After all, since someone had seen him trying to get rid of the evidence, it had to be just a matter of time before someone was knocking on his door. His fear was valid since the authorities had already been called to the scene to investigate his crime. Well, yeah, and being that small and hella Asian. Yeah. Oh, you'll see something here well, there, in a little a lot, bit. There, there, there's several Asians that go in and out of Paris. It's a, it's, it's a vacation destination. But middle of the night, a yeah, single he, he kind of stood out. You're going to stand out like a motherfucker. Yeah. So, like, the, the two that saw him can sit there and go, yeah, this was him. He was wearing, like, a set of Reeboks, and he had a blue shirt, and he was wearing khaki pants. Yeah. And, you know, and, and his wallet was bulging out of his left pocket. They're going to be able to ID him without Yeah, because... Being a sh- that <laughs> short of a person, anyways, you already stand out. Oh, and the receding airline, because I saw the picture, and that's a hell of a receding airline. Well, that's that's later, but yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, you should see some of his younger pictures. He's actually very good looking, except for his arrest picture, which, I mean, he looked like a psycho. <laughs> they always do. Yeah. As soon as the responding officer arrived at the crime scene, they were warned by the traumatized couple about what they were going to find in the contents. Of the bag. Sure enough, as they flipped open the lid of the first case, there it was, the dismembered torso of a young, fair-skinned woman. When they unzipped the second bag, they found the severed head and limbs that belonged to her. The investigators immediately sent the body parts to the coroner's office to be examined, and I will say the pictures I got were graphic. Nice! Yeah, they were so freaking graphic. Um... Okay, my son. Graphic audio. Me. That's what I was thinking. Remember when we were talking about doing the next podcast? Yeah. It, 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 the the company's called Graphic Audio. What company? We were talking about interview with a serial killer. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Which is our the one that's in production right now. Okay. That was the idea that I had. I'm so, I'm sorry to 
belt that out right now, but before big you forget, yeah, if I, I, but I'll end up forget. But that's what they're called. Okay, got it. Oh, the book series. Yes. Okay, got it. So, um, let's see, where was I? Oh, the investigators immediately sent them to the coroner's office, and once the bags were handed over to the medical examiner, he carefully removed the pieces and laid them out in the exam table so they could be, quote, assembled for autopsy. As soon as he picked up the head to place it at the torso on the table, he noticed that he rightfully assumed was the woman's cause of death, a large wound at the nape of the severed neck consistent with a gunshot wound. Hey, we're in the park. Anybody want a little head? Fucking sicko. In the dark, in the park. Um, as he continued to piece together the human jigsaw puzzle before him, he made another startling discovery. Each body part he removed from the case to place in its respectful spot on the table had sections of flesh removed. For instance, he noticed right away that someone had delicately cut thick slices off the woman's thighs and buttocks. Not to mention the woman's head was missing the tip of its nose. Now, standard operating procedure, or SOP, for any criminal investigation requires any and all evidence to be photographed before technicians can process it. This case was no exception. As one of the investigators went through the painstaking process of taking evidentiary pictures of the stunning turning, stomach-turning contents of the bikes, they never expected them to make it any further than the case files. The, those photographs that were only meant to be seen by law enforcement officials and the courts one day wound up in the wrong hands. The hands of the editor for a very popular French publication that knew if he released them to the public, he would make a nice, you know, a hefty chunk of change. So after all, he wouldn't be presenting this case. I wouldn't be presenting this case for you today if it wasn't a widespread morbid fascination with violence, murder and death. Now that we have research tools at our fingertips, it's easier to find the morbid fodder of crime scene photos than it ever has been before. I'll admit, when it didn't take very much effort for me to find the stomach-turning images, I was captivated by what he had done. It was like a fucking train wreck. Choo-choo, motherfucker! Yeah, I was, I was like enthralled with those pictures. So luckily for the authorities, apprehending the suspect wouldn't be, would be as, wouldn't be as cumbersome as murder investigation. As some murder investigations. I, I put would be, but wouldn't be. I'll fix it real quick. There you go. Um, it also happened, it also helped that the perpetrator had helped make their job a lot easier since he was so careless in his disposal process. They managed to get a nice description of him, obviously. A short man of oriental genealogy who had gotten out of a taxi cab. Okay. Now, granted, Paris has always been considered somewhat of a cosmopolitan city. Therefore, narrowing the search down by the physical description of the man was going to be a little difficult. However, they had a pretty decent lead to start their investigation. It's a taxi cab, man. taxi, yes. Yeah, it's the middle of the night, a taxi. I'm yes. pretty sure that the taxi driver, oh, I see the little Asian man, and he got out of the, out of the car with two giant bags. <laughs> yeah. Stupid Americans. Stupid Japanese. Stupid Japanese man. Yeah, they began by contacting all the taxi companies. Okay, the hope was that one of the drivers would recognize the description of the tiny little man with the heavy suitcases. If they did, perhaps they would also remember where they picked him up. Um, yeah, they knew that what they were hoping to achieve might be a long shot. However, everyone in the cave was confident it would pay off. It took a couple of days of frequently checking in with the taxi companies to see if any of the drivers had come forward. But eventually, one of them remembered picking up the passenger. The driver stated that he was called to pick up a man matching the description at an apartment complex on Rue Arlanga. I only know that because I watched the documentary. That was the affluent area of Atuel in the 16th district of Paris. To get an idea of how upscale the neighborhood, this neighborhood is, a fair equivalent would be either Notting Hill or Greenwich Village. It's known as a relatively chic, somewhat designer-quality neighborhood. The polar opposite of its surrounding neighborhoods, which are known for their poverty-stricken population and high crime rates. Co coincidentally, this, also, this place also wasn't very far from the Bois. Now, for approximately 48 hours, this small Asian man from the park flitted around his apartment in a constant state of paranoia. He figured it was only a matter of time before he would hear the knock on the door that he had been dreading. He was also too aware of the fact that he had crossed the line. 
an invisible line that had been drawn in the sands of society for centuries. He was just waiting for them to come and get him. As it turned out, the apartment <laughs> complex the taxi driver described to the authorities wasn't just an extremely, extremely expensive place to live. It was also relatively small. In fact, most of the apartment buildings along there were quaint little communities. When the investigators went to the building and questioned some of the tenants, they couldn't believe their luck. There was actually only one Asian man <laughs> living in that building. <laughs> yeah. That's that poor up. guy. <coughs> so um, the authorities discovered that his studio apartment was located on the second floor. Once they were pointed in the right direction, they approached with caution. Because they knew the suspect owned or, or at least had access to one firearm and was more than capable of using it to commit murder. Since he had already dismembered and mutilated one victim, they were also aware that he was capable of extreme violence. When the man occupying the resident heard his doorbell chime out of out a familiar tune, he talked about it like it was just, you know, he was like he was going to dance to it or something. He knew his visitors were the officers he'd been expecting. He slowly walked to the entry, grabbed the doorknob, and let out a deep sigh of resignation. After all, he was actually kind of surprised it had taken him that long. Right? Two whole days. (laughs) So, on Monday, April 26, 1949, in Kobe, Japan, a very pregnant Tomei Sagawa was descending the stairs in her house when she suddenly fell. Somehow, the way she fell and landed prevented her from having a miscarriage. However, it still caused her to go into premature labor, and she gave birth to her son that day. Akira and Tomei proudly welcomed their newborn into the world by naming him Isi. They later talked about how he was so incredibly tiny when he was born. He was so small, they said he was minute enough to fit in the palm of his father's hand. Can you imagine? Because Asian hands are not big. No, they are very small. Yeah, they're smaller than mine. So to be able to fit in the palm of his father's hand, that is a tiny ass baby. That's why I like Asians and midgets, because they're all stackable. Except for your son. Small, they all have small hands that can wrap around your small penis. Make it look huge. Except for your son. Your son's like a freaking... The, dude, My son's an anomaly. He's like nine feet tall. He is Freaky, actually six foot eight, I think. He's freakishly tall, man. Yeah. I'm going to take him to the circus and sell him. I'm yeah, which is kind of, I mean, he's got the Dutch jeans for reals because his dad is only like five foot six, five foot seven, which is kind of tall for an Asian anyways. Right? Oh, that so, is the truth. <laughs> Shut you are You want to do a podcast now? <laughs> I listen. Oh. I hate you. So their frail infant's first serious complication occurred almost immediately after he was born. He developed enteritis, which, and I'll explain in a minute. Don't ask what it is. No, I know what that is. Oh, okay. Which required the doctors to administer life-saving injections of saline, calcium, and potassium. Several of those treatments had to be given before his health began to improve. Now, there are some people who don't know what it is. So let me just take a moment to explain. By definition, enteritis is an inflammation of the small intestine. Enteritis, not enteritis. I know. I realized I made that mistake as soon as I said it, but right. I was hoping you'd gloss over it. But no. Typically, no. because I can't gloss over your freaking. <laughs> exactly. <twat. laughs> your miss sayings. Sorry, you stopped talking again. Typically, the inflammation is caused by bacterial, viral, or parasitic infection. However, it's also common in patients who undergo radiation treatments, have a history of drug use, or if they're prone to chronic illnesses. Now, when it's also present in the stomach, it's referred to as gastroenteritis, which I've heard of that. Yeah, my buddy, the- my, but that's what my buddy Lynn has. My, my buddy Lynn, my, a good friend who? of mine, Lynn. My buddy Lynn, mm. um, he has gastroenteritis. And he's got yeah. Crohn's as well. Oh, yeah. So in the large, in- if the large <laughs> intestine is infect- affected, it's called enter- enterocolitis. Mm-hmm. Now, the most common symptoms of enteritis are elevated fever, abdominal pain, and abdominal swelling. Enteritis also, enteritis also affects a person's process of digestion. As a result, the patient may experience extreme nausea, vomiting, and or diarrhea. If they only last a couple of days, it's considered an acute form. However, some patients might have a coinciding chronic condition like Crohn's that results in persistent enteritis. Yep. He gets treat for, he gets a lot of treatment for that. Yeah. I mean, my sister wife, 
I call her my sister wife. People don't understand that, but we joke around that her husband's mine. <laughs> are they coming to the next show so I can make it up for them for um, ignoring them? I don't know if they are, because you know they live over in eastern Oregon. Right, right. I, just have, I, I still feel bad. Yeah, she but. was in Vegas this last weekend. Otherwise, she probably would have gone. Oh, sweet. Okay, continue. Yeah, that's why I reminded you to say your, you know, do your little tour before the end of the, you know, you went on for your third set. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. I know how you felt about that. Yeah. Oh, totes. Yeah. Totes. And plus, I had to get those pictures with your mom. Cause... Of course you did. Mm. Um, anyways. around your mom. Shut up. God damn. He was hot. only a toddler when the concept of cannibalism started to form in his psyche. Some might find that hard to believe, so I'll explain how it happened. He and his brother, June, had an uncle named Mitsua. Did you just Mi- call him Jew? June. Oh, gotcha. Sorry. Yeah. I thought you called him a Jew. No. Had an uncle named Mitsuo. During the family's traditional New Year celebration, Mitsuo would arrive disguised as a giant intent on on finding little boys he could eat. While he was dressed in this monster costume, he chased after the little children who scampered away to avoid being devoured. It's weird because I dress up like myself and I look for grown women to eat. Nothing? Nothing to that? Oh, no, fine. No. Fine. Notice the silence? Fine. You know what? That is forever my son's favorite line that you said one time when I was talking. <laughs> Notice the silence. <laughs> so I'm glad I finally got it back. That's awesome. Yeah. Since um, Easy and June were the only young boys there, they were obviously the focus of this frightening, quote, monster's <laughs> evil intentions. Their father, Akira, would always dress the part of a knight in shining armor and join the fray as their intended savior. The two boys squealed and laughed as the boy-eating monster chased them around the house, making exaggerated sounds befitting of a hungry giant. Interestingly enough, the fascination for cannibalism that grew in Easy's young mind was probably due to the fact that this giant always seemed to win in the end. As the gallant knight pursues the monster in an attempt to save the children from becoming his next meal, the giant manages to blind the hero. Then as the knight blindly wields his sword in an attempt to slay the monster, the beast gets the upper hand and the slays the knight instead. God, brutal. So what the, the hell? monster wins. What the hell, man? I know, right? And this is a game they play with children. Holy cow. Well, traditions are different around the world. Like, yeah. like for Christmas, is it the Swedes? Oh, God, or is it Norway? I can't remember. Santa Claus over there is way different oh, yeah, yeah, than yeah, it yeah. is here. Like, Santa Claus comes around with his slaves. Yeah, well, and not just that. It's also over in one of the Scandinavian countries where they put out shoes. Yeah, that's Holland. Oh, is it is it my Holland? Yeah, that's Holland. Oh, my bad. You'd think I'd know more about my heritage, but no. And, like, but Santa over there, uh, if, if you're good, you get presents. And if you're not, then he puts you in a bag and beats you with a stick. Oh, I have so many children. I'd love to do that, too. Yeah, me, too. <laughs> Let's go to Walmart. Yeah, no <laughs> shit, yo. Christmas is coming early. <laughs> I almost choked. So <laughs> You don't do that often. No. Not at all, my dear friend. So Mitsuo, as the <laughs> giant, would then swoop the boys into his arm and make his way over to the kid-sized cast iron pot, which they literally had one. <laughs> That's awesome. And EC later talked about how he felt a staggering combination and his words, sheer terror and childlike glee. As he and June were slowly placed into the giant stew pot, as they flailed about wildly, both boys joyously anticipated the game every year. Therefore, it's not a surprise that it had had such a profound impact on his highly impressionable psyche, right? Jesus, it's a freaking game. Right, but... I mean, okay, well, okay, okay. By our standard, Jam, it might be a little freaky and inappropriate that because we live in a country where the good guys always win. True. But it's just a freaking game. Yeah, and it what, is what? just a game, but I also look at it, he was a toddler. <laughs> and so to see a monster win and a monster that ate people win, you know. Oh, wait till you get to be older. Trust me, you'll eat a lot of people. Yeah. 
Then, as he learned to read, he was still enthralled with the fantasy world he was introduced to as a toddler, a world in which humans would consume fellow humans. As a result, the books he sought out, he found himself drawn to were the fairy tales in which the world <laughs> fantasy the world of fantasy clashed with reality. He always seemed to be most intrigued by the tales that focus on people being consumed by dragons, monsters, and especially other people. One of his favorite stories, do you know? They can probably ha- Hansel and Gretel, yes. I would say, because the, the Wicked Witch yes. puts him in a pot or puts him in the oven. Yes. Yeah. He later talked about how he would spend hours just <laughs> laying in his bed awake at night thinking about that story. In his mind, he had an image of the witch, and he would then replay that image over and over again as he thought of her, quote, fattening up the young boy and girl she had captured. And at some point during those fantasies, he had what some psychologists actually say an early sexual awakening. The erotic sensations he felt were stronger when he imagined the witch preparing them as their meal. They became even stronger when he imagines himself as one of the victims. E.C. started developing these masochistic fantasies early in his life and often recalled the joy he felt when he played the traditional New Year's game with his uncle. And he thought about being, quote, manhandled and forced into the pot of a powerful giant. He felt a sultry, primal sensation throughout his body. I don't see anything wrong with that. At this point, now no, no, hold no, on. But you have to remember, he's still in grade school level here. Okay, but sometimes people come into uh, their sexuality early. He's developing an early fetish. And if he was to, whether straight or gay doesn't really matter, but with his partner had that kind of a dynamic, right. I'd be okay with that. Like seriously, okay. even if he was just a, a young teenager or what have not, wanting to be manhandled because that's just his thing. And that that's fine. Okay, yeah, manhandled, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... That's, we I, all I, know I'd like to be spanked and slapped a little I'm bit. I'm just trying to give some clarity to this because people, oh my god, what a thick bastard! No, the, I mean, the, the I mean, I'm sick. not saying he's sick here, but the only thing I found disturbing was he was so fucking young. Mm, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean. But he, you know, this is what. Yeah, he found what tripped his trigger early, 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 early. early. And I, I don't see a problem with that. Did we just finish each other's sentence again? Yes, like we <laughs> normally freaking do. That's disgusting. Stay out of my fucked up head. <laughs> no, you need to stay out of mine. So when he had this overwhelming and somewhat erotic feeling, he became infatuated with repeating that experience. When said, I think about giant pots, I touch myself. <laughs> Sorry, had to. Monsters that manhandle me. Oh, my God. When I think of monsters, I touch myself. Whoa. <laughs> You're horrible. He I wonder said, if he looked over his shoulder at his uncle and goes, Uncle, now spank me. Spank me. Tell me I'm a dirty boy. <laughs> stick me in the pot. <laughs> Do it hard. Harder. Throw me in the pot. Cook me up. <laughs> he said that while he was laying in his bed, rather than try to sleep, he would purposely try to manifest that sensation again and again, night after night. Now, as Easy began to going to school, it wasn't lost on him that he was definitely different than the other young boys. He knew that his secret fantasies about engaging in cannibalism weren't something he should freely share with his peers if he wanted to avoid their ridicule. Since he was either unwilling or unable to share what he was really feeling, he often chose to remain a loner. Every time he thought about sharing his thoughts and feelings with others, his fear prevented him from following through. After all, the other kids would most likely find his thoughts to be ridiculous, which would cause them to mock and laugh at him. But worse of all, if they found out, they might reject him. And he's already short statured. You know what I mean? So he's also right. already stood out and was probably bullied for it. But we see a lot of that. We see a lot of that already. With kids that are different in mm-hmm. school that wind up on our show, usually there's something wrong. Like, uh, well, like yeah. in, in this dude's case... He's like a he, he's a mini Asian. Yes. So I'm pretty sure his peers are making fun of him because kids are mean. Yes. Kids are little assholes, man. So he's already got that going on. Right. And I can understand him being a loner because he doesn't want to let that slip. Right. Like that accidentally, like oh, I think about the being in a bigger pot and then eating people, and they'd be like, um, and being eaten. Yeah, and then being eaten by a big giant, and they'd be like, um, okay, you know what? Yeah. We're going to be over here. Yeah. We're going to play over here. You stay right here. Then kids talk, man. So they're talking to the other True. kids. Appreciate the whole school is sitting there going, dude, this this Ishii guy is He's messed up. He's a little up. nuts. 
Yeah, he's, yeah. he's messed up. Despite the fact that he practically had no friends, he loved going to school. He was an intelligent child and embellished himself in the learning process. It became a coping mechanism for his inability to, confront the no- to the- conform to the norms of society. The classroom was a place of refuge for the emotionally stunted and shy loner he had become. Now, his mother never missed an opportunity to pamper him in his early years. Considering he had such a tumultuous start in life as a premature infant, she never overcame her need to protect him. In her mind, he was always a frail and extremely fragile child. As a result of her overprotective helicopter mom mentality, he felt smothered by her attention. Now, and when I saw pictures of him as a kid, he was a cute little boy that you just want to protect him. You know what I mean? All Asians are pretty cute when they're small. Like, seriously. I know. I'm not, that's not even one of my sex jokes or anything. No, no, because my son was hella cute. My nephews are hella cute, except for the stinky foot boy who's chunky. Your nephew, the little rice burner, is freaking adorable. I love that kid. Yeah, and he likes you, too. As soon as I told him you were there, he, like, couldn't wait to go outside and see you. Oh, yeah, because he knows I'll mess with him, you yeah, know? Yeah, I said, you want to go see Uncle Scott? And he just, like, <laughs> ran to me. Oh, yeah, he's, he's hella cool, man. I would, yeah. I would so hang out with him. Yeah. With little Yugi. Yuki. Yuki. I call him Yuki. His name's Yubi, but yeah. yeah Yubi. Because he's, I call him Yuki. He's a good kid, man. Him and I always have fun whenever, whenever you know, yeah. I see him. Yeah, he's adorable. So any attempt that Yusi made... um, to be self-sufficient and independent young boy was stifled by her incessant need to protect him from harm. She hardly let him out of her sight. In fact, the only place he went where he might have to fend for himself was school. However, the school he attended was structured around discipline. So even in that environment, he was still shielded from the harsh realities of life because he went to a private school. That makes sense. Yeah. The worst part of his day, not surprisingly, was recess. He was so awkward and shy around his fellow classmates that he practically feared any sort of interaction with them. In order to conquer his fears, he quickly sought out a secluded area of the playground where he would be left alone with his daydreams. He later stated that it was his classes and thirst for knowledge in those days that kept him grounded. Which, I kind of see that, because I I dove into my education. No, that, that was me, and I'll tell you, and this isn't even, like I said, I, got, I always have to remind everybody, this is one of my jokes, like... When I first got to high school, I was shy, man. Like, I was actually afraid of people. You're kind of afraid of them now. I'm not afraid. I just hate people now. Yeah. I told, I'm just not a people person. And here's why. Here's why. Because most of you people, not all, I've met some good people, but most people are assholes. True. You know? Uh, but that's just me. Because I, I'm, I'm, I try to be a respectful person most of the time. Um, and most people are not. But um, I was really shy and afraid of people. Um and it wasn't until I met a good friend of mine. We talked about Fred before, Fred Wilcox. Yeah. And then my buddy uh, who died just last year, named Richard Gill, that kind of brought me out of my shell a little bit. Yeah, isn't it Fred Wilcox that introduced you to first like female <laughs> encounter when you were forty? Yes, and I wasn't forty. <laughs> Yes. No. I always make fun of you because you've always said you were a late bloomer. Well, Fred was awesome because you want to talk about a good friend. I love telling this story. So. I would sneak out of the house. We would go to the drive-in theater with a boombox. Okay. And we, you could dial in the the uh, movie, whatever was playing. Right. And you could watch the movie middle of the night. And I couldn't, if I if I got caught doing that, then I was busted. Oh, yeah, because your parents were Southern Baptists. So. And then just assholes, too. Yeah. But uh, Was no. dancing illegal? I danced down naked, covered in butter. With your tucked? <laughs> then I go. Going, I'm a pretty boy. I'm a pretty boy. <laughs> So it was me, and and if Fred got caught, it was even worse. Like his parents were psycho, like worse than yours. Oh, way, way worse. Like they oh, were wow. very abusive. So it was me and Fred and his younger brother, and we're uh, we're sitting in the riverbed uh, on the bank, and we're we're watching RoboCop. Okay. And uh, all of a sudden, we see these lights come on at the end, and we're all, oh shit, it's the cops. Fred runs, jumps, makes it over the, uh, the, the the waterway. His brother does. And then I hear, James Scott Alexander. And I froze. And I'm telling Fred, dude, get out of here. You're in way more trouble than I am. And he stops. He says, dude, if you're going to get in trouble, we all get in trouble. Oh, it's your dad, huh? It was my mom and stepdad. Oh, shit. He jumped across and 
took him home and everything like that. And he got in huge trouble. I just got grounded because by then the beatings had stopped. Wow. Um, but I just got grounded. But Fred got some shit. But yeah. Wow. And he, he knew what he was uh, up against. When he, I said, dude, you got to run. Get out of here. You'll get in trouble. Yeah. Worst trouble than me. Nope. If you, I'm, I'm, I'm not letting you go down by yourself. Wow. That's a friend. Yeah, that is a friend right there. Unlike you, who would sit there and go, adios, pichachos. You, you know what I would say? I'd be like, I'm going to pop some popcorn and watch this shit. <laughs> Hold on, this is going to be a good show. <laughs> it's better than Robocop. <laughs> Way better than the movie. Goddamn, yeah. I think ass cheat in Southern. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You can't understand what they're saying, but the lady, it looks like he's mad. The lady in front of me at Walmart, she was so Southern. She had that Louisiana. I knew she was from Louisiana because I saw her license plate outside. <laughs> but yeah, she said she broke down in the parking lot the night before, and she had to spend the night there. I mean, Southern or Creole? She was Southern. Okay. Yeah, she wasn't French Creole. Okay. Because I kind of know the difference. All right, because most people don't. Most people sit there and go, "She's Southern." No. No, there's she's a French Creole. You can actually hear the different twang. Oh, very different. Yeah. Very different. Anyway, yeah. continue on with our friend Isi Sakawa. Yeah, so he was 12 years old in 1961 when he left primary school and entered secondary. As he entered into puberty and his intellect grew, he left the fantasy world of fairy tales and became intrigued by some of the great literary works of all time. More specifically, the stories that took place in Western civilization. That's where his fantasy also evolved. For instance, he was especially drawn to novels like War and Peace. However, where most people are intrigued by the epic novels because they have a passion and love for the stories themselves, he became infatuated with the characters. (coughs) He became somewhat preoccupied with the vivid descriptions of the female heroines in the book. He often read the books over and over just so he could devour details of their grace, elegance, and beauty. <coughs> you okay Sorry. over there, kid? Yeah, I got a little air and, like, swallowed my own saliva like you do. Oh, okay. So when Easy talked about this time in his life later, he said that he regarded these women with their pale flesh and romantic disposition as angels. As his reading preferences evolved into a more mature form of literature, he also being introduced to the visual arts. He immersed himself in the works of French Impressionist artist Auguste Renoir. Now, Renoir's paintings frequently depicted women with creamy white flesh. The more he exposed himself to this art, the more he longed to be with a woman like those portrayed on canvas. The longer he studied the soft images with their luxuriant peach-hued skin, he fantasized about how that flesh would feel under his delicate touch, But most importantly, he imagined how it would taste on his lips. (laughs) I've imagined that a few times. And I'm not talking about just a little nibble nibble. No, me neither. I'm talking like, oh, you're talking about like physically chewing on them. No, I'm talking about like eating them in a whole different way. Okay, go ahead. No, you're not talking about like sinking your teeth into their flesh. Not today. Not with that attitude. (laughs) Well, now that you've offered... (laughs) So, as he navigated through puberty as an adolescent, his overwhelming preoccupation with the desire to eat the flesh of a woman increased. He said that the first time he ever experienced an ejaculation was while he was envisioning thoughts of his favorite actress, Grace Kelly. Now, she was beautiful. She was, yeah. Now, he was absolutely enthralled by the low-cut dresses that she wore in pictures he saw in magazines. He had a very specific fantasy when he envisioned what it would be like to first caress, then devour her flesh, her fair-colored flesh. Delicious. At the moment he ejaculated the first time, psychologists said he established a direct correlation between sex and cannibalism. That is true. Yeah, because he imagined eating her flesh, so therefore he he associated his orgasm with cannibalism. So that was a turning point in his life that wouldn't play out until a little later. Okay. Um, Easy was very much aware that he wasn't as athletic or physically a- extroverted. Although he was very agile, he wasn't like a sport, you know, sports nut because he was short. Um, he began to believe that he would somehow be able to gain more nourishment if he consumed the flesh of Rubenesque beauties similar to those that Renoir painted that captivated him so much. 
the older he got, the more intense his fantasies became. The more intense his fantasies became, the more he needed to bring himself to orgasm. It got to a point where he sought out opportunities and locations where he could just masturbate. Now, after a while, he had to add more and more elements to his fantasies in order to achieve a satisfying orgasm. Since this is a typical experience among most serial killers, especially the organized ones, it didn't come as a huge shock to find out that he started adding blatant violence to his ever-evolving ultimate fantasy. For instance, he later, you know, you were talking to your son for just a minute, so you didn't hear how he sought out locations to masturbate. He would said that he would literally sometimes masturbate three or four times a day. Holy cow, what the hell? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, my, my, my son just said those are rookie numbers. Get those puberty, up. so, you know. I'm pretty sure my son masturbates 20, 30 times a day. That door's closed sure a lot. As much as he keeps his door shut now? <laughs> God dang. Sick little bastard. Your son. For instance, um, he later talked about his more morbid fantasies. He would inconspicuously watch a healthy, fair-skinned woman while she showered, unaware of his presence. As she lathered herself up, he would sneak up behind her, wrap his belt around her neck, and strangle her from behind. Because you know he couldn't do it face-on because he was too small. Yeah, right. But yeah. he's small enough, if he came up from behind, like you wouldn't even notice he's there. Well, and not just that. If he got good leverage, is all he'd have to do is hang on, and he could choke her to death. So hold on loosely, and don't let go. <laughs> 38 special song. Yeah, I kind of knew that. For instance, oh, wait. The mere thought of being able to choke the life out of a naked woman elicited such a powerful orgasm that from that point on, it became a necessary element in all of his fantasies. In fact, it became evident to him that he could no longer achieve an erection unless he visualized himself killing and consuming the flesh of the object of his fantasy. Now, once Easy realized the enormity of the situation, he did something you rarely see among those who become sexual sadists. He sought professional help. Normally, in terms of serial killers, they tend to hide that side of themselves. When they don't process the feelings those those fantasies cause within them, the tension builds until they have to kill someone to release it. Now, he was only 15 years old the first time he decided to contact a professional psychiatrist for help. Granted, his morbid visions had already been going on for several years. However, the violent element to the point of murder had just started. When he spoke to a psychiatrist over the phone, he was told that if he truly wanted help, he would have to go into the office and be seen, which I understand. It wouldn't do him any good to hide behind the other end of a phone to address his problems. However, he was too ashamed and embarrassed by the concept of looking someone in the eye and sharing his most intimate secrets. He opted not to pursue the guidance of a professional when it came to controlling his morbid and increasingly violent fantasies. However, he did eventually decide to confide in his brother just about then. Well, and I, I read that June was older, but according to the documentary, he was younger. Oh. It didn't really take EC's and he didn't take Issa seriously. In fact, he later stated that he thought his brother was trying to pull a prank on him, and he quickly dismissed it and the disturbing things he had talked about. Now, he didn't have any real connections with anyone, no substantial connections with anyone in his family, let alone among his peers. As a result, the more violent his secret fantasies became, the further he retreated in his into his isolated world. No matter what he did, he couldn't stop thinking about those violent thoughts. He had already tried reaching out to a professional and didn't receive any amount of help. When he tried confiding in his brother, his brother just blew him off and didn't try offering him any help. Easy seemed to be at some sort of an impasse. He knew that he was incapable of helping himself. However, he also didn't feel like anyone else could help him either at that point. That was when he adopted the attitude of convenience, so to speak. He stopped struggling against his thoughts and fantasies and pretty much figured it is what it is. Or as he put it, what will be, will be. Or as he put it, it is a what it is. Oh. <laughs> hey, Sarah, Sarah. I like sushi, sushi. <laughs> You're so bad. He started accepting the fact that one day he wouldn't know when in the future, he was going to, quote, capture one of the white goddesses that occupied the majority of his thoughts and subject her to his darkest needs. Now, 
Over the next several years, he tried focusing his attention elsewhere. He devoted a lot of his time and energy into achieving substantial accomplishments in things academic. Even then, his desire and need to consume flesh never diminished. Finally, in 1970, right around the time he turned 21, he finally allowed himself the opportunity to have a real-life experience endangering the life of another human. A young German woman had captured his attention. Now, Germans, for the most part of history, have been Rubenesque women. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, we're all kind of built like broad stature, but, you know. Kind of like a brick wall. She's a brick house. Oh, she's mighty, mighty. Let my nail hang out. <laughs> You're horrible. <laughs> Now, almost from the moment he became aware of her, he devoted a significant amount of his time stalking her. Well, yeah, you got to stalk her first. You can't kill her without yeah. stalking. No. And she didn't even know him. You know, later, I mean, after I watched the documentary, it's like he saw her in passing and sought her all the time. Now, he followed her and he followed her and he followed her. I don't know why I have the word in there. Um, and discovered where she lived. He continued to study her movements and behaviors until he learned that on warmer nights, she left her window open. Once he had established that she had a set pattern, he finally made a decision that it was time. He made plans to sneak into her home, murder her, and live out his ultimate morbid fantasy, which was to consume her flesh. On the night in question... When he snuck into her house, the woman was sound asleep. However, he didn't even try to make an effort to be subtle. And as he walked her into her bedroom, she suddenly woke up and noticed a stranger standing over her, and she screamed at the top of his lungs. He knew that as small as he was, he wouldn't be able to overpower her. So when she screamed, he ran. Because she's a big German woman, Miss Dami. That's true. They're very stout and very strong women. Continue. I know, because I'm German. And you're well, partially scary. partially German. You're a very scary woman, Tammy. Well, I know you're not scared of me, Dieter. You're a very scary, scary I Sasquatch. I mean, I'll never forget the time you came up behind me, pulled my hair, and told me you'd kill me. <laughs> I do not remember that. <laughs> okay. So, the following day, E.C. knew that he had to get help from someone, or he would wind up causing serious harm. So he picked up the phone and reached out to another psychiatrist, hoping they would be able to help him overcome his excessive thoughts and fantasies. The person he spoke to at the office was able to convince him to go in for a session. <coughs> Sorry. After Easy sat down with the psychiatrist, told him what happened at the woman's home the previous evening, and when he was finished describing the events, this licensed psychiatrist should be shot. He, who was supposed to, they're supposed to remain unbiased and non-judgmental, right? He made it clear that he did not sympathize with what his new patient was experiencing. In fact, he took it even further. He told EC, quote, he was a public danger. He even made it very clear that he felt his new patient had crossed ethical boundaries by admitting what he had done rather than work with EC on what he had not done the night before. Despite how disgusted the psychiatrist seemed to be with EC had told him about, nothing went further than that. It seems like the entire issue and EC's attempted assault on the young woman just disappeared. Now, I found out from watching the documentary that she did go to the authorities, but his father paid her off. Mm. Yeah. So keep in mind, this occurred in 1970. I don't know what the laws regarding doctor-patient confidentiality were back then. Not to mention they took the events took place in Japan. I don't even know if they have the same laws that we have here in the United States. However, if they are the same all the way around the world, I'm not surprised that nothing more was done. Mainly because according to HIPAA laws here in the U.S., a person can confess having committed a crime to their psychologist without any repercussions. The psychologist and psychiatrist cannot, under any circumstances, go to the authorities with what was disclosed to them unless it was against a minor 
the patient revealed their intentions or the patient revealed their intentions to cause harm to another individual. Mm-hmm. So unless they're planning on harming somebody else or that they did harm a minor, nothing can be said past that office. Yeah. Yeah. So, however, events that transpired later led some people to surmise that there might be more to the situation than what we see on the surface. That there was an outside influence that caused the situation to be swept under a rug where it was otherwise not have been. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But like I said, I didn't watch the documentary until I was way done with this. <laughs> Even though it appeared as if Easy experienced a small level of remorse when his, it's, when his attack against the young woman was failed... He managed to get over it. It wasn't long before his fantasies reached a level that had him actively seeking out the opportunity to make them reality. In other words, he may have thought he was sorry for what he had done. He truly wasn't sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Mm -hmm. Because he wanted to be successful his next time. He continued to keep his depraved thoughts to himself. He was just waiting for the moment he was given a second opportunity to make his fantasy become a reality in the meantime he continued to excel in his education endeavors it wasn't long before he earned his master's degree in shakespearean literature it would only be a short time later when he ventured out from under the protective wing of his mother that decision brought him to a junction in his life where the real world and his fantasy were in a set little did he know it was a head-on fucking collision now Sometime in 77, he decided he wanted to study abroad. He transferred, and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Wakol, but I say Waco. Yeah. University in, Toko- in Tokyo, only because they don't have the, you know, the A sound over there. Right. Um, to enroll in the Sorbonne in France. I'm pretty sure he chose that location because it would be swimming with the type of women that would satisfy his fantasies. Yes, you know, it would. You know, the creamy-skinned Svelte, kind of Rubenesque women. Uh huh. Yeah. So the twenty. They huh? don't shave their armpits, which is gross. But okay. But you know, not everybody really cares about that. I do. Just like I know some men that actually like a woman to be a little hairier than normal in everywhere. So they like Sasquatches. Okay, well, each their own, I guess. Whoa. I was with a man that asked me not to be waxed anymore. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> Welcome to the jungle, Sasquatch yeah. lives here. I was like, that is never going to happen, even though, you know. And the 28-year-old man was extremely cultured. He was highly intelligent and most definitely still a virgin. Like a virgin. Yeah. Hey, killing for the very first time. <coughs> now, by then, the urge he had to kill a woman and consume her flesh had mutated exponentially. Therefore, it wasn't a matter of if it would happen. It was a matter of when it would happen. Now that he had been thrust into a sea of females sporting extremely revealing tops and incredibly short skirts, Isis's desire continued to burn inside his soul. Two years after he transferred to the Sorbonne, he learned about the occurrence of what he considered a tra- what he considered a tragic event. Probably not for the reasons we consider it that way, but yeah. One of the actresses, American actresses he admired, Jean Seberg, committed suicide. They found her body in her car not far from where he lived in Paris. Since she was one of the first women he ever became infatuated with, he thought it was fate had stepped in when she decided so close, she when she died so close to where he was living, when he read the articles written about her suicide in the local newspapers, he learned that she was naked when someone discovered her body, which makes you wonder if she committed suicide, right? Hmm, that's kind of hot. Yeah, that little tidbit of information just added more fuel to his fire of desire. Now we would consider it a tragic event because she committed suicide, right? He wondered what it would have been like had he been the one to discover her body. He would have taken her back to his apartment before anyone realized what had happened so that he could consume her supple flesh. His thought on it was it was tragic that he didn't find her first. No, I can understand where he's coming from. Really? I don't, no, I don't agree with it, but given his, his psyche and his, his 
his fetish and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, his propensities. And, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that I agree in any way, shape, or form. I, just, I understand. Right. No, I understand what you're saying. Now, this is our last little bit before we end for today. But his thoughts and desires became so overwhelming that he knew he had to make a move in the near future to realize his fantasy. He even thought about abducting a woman, but he didn't know if that would help him fulfill the fantasy he had built in his mind. Because in his mind, he, he, he didn't abduct the women and kill them like a lot of our serial killers do. She was willingly with him. You know what I mean? Wow. That's yeah. a hard one to fulfill. Like, I'm serious. Yeah. Like, I mean... We've done ones before where people have voluntarily been cannibalized. We did one. Which one was that? Oh, maybe I read it. Yeah, because I don't remember it unless it was when I was out sick. No. Maybe I can't remember where I read it then. Um, but, uh, yeah, to find those kind of people that want to die in a horrific way. Oh. That's, uh, that's few and far How between. bizarre. So only when Isi realized that he couldn't obtain a woman that way, he felt it somewhat comforted him because he knew he couldn't go out and abduct somebody. So to him, he wasn't that sick, right? He later stated that this was the moment when his fantasy wasn't so much about the kill as he had originally thought. He figured if he had the opportunity to live out his ultimate fantasy from start to finish, it would be enough to satisfy his urges and he wouldn't have to act on his desires again. Now, once he realized he couldn't abduct a woman off the streets to fulfill his fantasies, he started trying to figure out a way to lure them to him. He figured the easiest targets would be what? Prostitutes. Of course. Right? Of course. Because they're willingly with you, so to speak. Right? And nobody gives a shit about him, which gets well, me, that, too. That, that pisses me off. Mm-hmm. People keep on attacking the fucking hookers, man. Leave the hookers alone. That's Let's, right. That's the only thing I'm asking from our future serial killers out there listening to this podcast. Look, man, leave the hookers alone. And I don't hire hookers. I just respect them. Yeah. Damn it. Leave the fucking hoes alone, fuckheads. <laughs> so, um, he figured if he could entice a woman with the promise of money, he'd be able to get her back to a studio where he could stab her to death. His plan worked somewhat. He was able to hire a beautiful blonde woman. However, while she was in the bathroom taking a shower, you know his fantasy where he'd sneak up on her in a shower? Uh-huh. He snuck up behind her. Before he made his move to attack, he deci- he discovered he just couldn't do it. Right? He had that hesitation. Oh, okay. So that might be the first of several attempts. That night would be the first of several attempts he made, all ending in failure to act on his morbid fantasy. Then, in 1980, he began to feel defeated. So he decided to return home to Japan for a while. He remained there for approximately four months before he decided to return to Paris. And that's when he encountered René Hartevelt, and his world changed forever. Well, hers did too. Nice little changing worlds and love. And Uh, so are the days of our lives. It's so romantic. I love that. Yeah. All right. We're going to close this one here out. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Get the full story without any of my bullshit. And also check out the YouTube channel. Just look up. Brutal Nation will pop right up for you. This show's copyrighted 2022. By Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you boys and girls next week. Adios, my friends. Adios.